Well, turn with me, uh, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 4. Certainly big things happening in our world and our country and our TV and social media feeds have been dominated by these uh, stories. Really, this one story that just seemed to never end. Um, Nevertheless, the Word of God uh, is what guides us. And the next passage in our series in Ephesians is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And so we simply continue along the path that the Holy Spirit set out for us a few months ago as we began this journey. And I trust uh, the sovereignty and providence of God, uh, even in um, the timing of where passages land, more than I trust my own instincts about what we need to hear at any given moment. And so in uh, confidence uh, in the Lord and trust uh, of his word, we simply keep plowing through the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. So just as a reminder of where we are in Ephesians. In uh, the beginning of chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, Paul provided for us really the umbrella For all of the material from chapter 4, verse 4, down through really the end of the book, through uh, chapter 6, verse 20. All of these sort of ethical instructions, all of these commands about how we are to to live um, are are really under the umbrella in verses 1 through 3. If you glance back with me, you'll see this. He calls us to... Uh, He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to, here's the umbrella, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So walking in a manner worthy of our calling is the framework for all of the commands and instructions that follow. Everything he tells us that as Christians we are to do is a way of expressing or really living out that walking worthy, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Since the gospel is so great, and since your new station in Christ is so elevated and important, remember he's seated us in the heavenly places with Christ, There are practical implications for how you live. The first of those implications concern the unity and interconnectedness of the church as the fully functioning body of Christ. And we spent the last two weeks on those verses. So verses uh, 1 through 6 spoke of the, the fundamental oneness that Christ has purchased and the Spirit has gifted to his people. The unity that we have, and in fact, he urged us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So it's a gift that he's given to us, and yet, it's one that there's a sense of fragility to it. There's a sense in which we could damage it. We can, by disobedience and by living out of step with the Spirit of God, we can do harm to this unity that Christ has purchased for us. And so he exhorts us to maintain it. To be eager to maintain that unity. And then in verses 7 through 16, he spoke in in the same theme of unity, but he began focusing on the individual components 
of the body of Christ that build that unity. So each member has his or her role to play. Each member is given grace by Christ of particular giftings and strengths and abilities and particular opportunities. And he's caused each member of that body to function together for the blessing of the whole and the growth of the whole. So that, he said in verse 16, when each part is working properly, the body grows. It builds itself up in love. It grows toward maturity in Christ. And so now, in verse 17, he again picks up the metaphor of walking. Just as he started the chapter, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And this metaphor of, of walking is, is a description of our manner of life. It's our, uh, our habits of conduct, what characterizes our behavior in the world. Walk in this way is to continually and habitually live in these certain ways. And he begins with a contrast. Let's read these verses together, verses 17 through 24. And then we'll take it uh, one piece at a time. Beginning in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Really two overarching or sort of umbrella commands here in these verses. One is a negative and one is a positive. One is a don't do this. One is a do do this. Verse, the first is simply this. Don't live like unbelievers. Don't live like unbelievers. That's really simple. Could not be more plain. And that is the message of verses 17 through 19 in this chapter as Paul is speaking to, again, a largely Gentile audience. These are mostly non-Jewish people who have come to faith in Christ. And so they are Gentile Christians. And so when he says, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, he's not making a dig at them. He's not making even like an, an ethnic comment here that like people who aren't Jewish are bad people. He is simply saying, you Gentiles were unbelievers, right? You were separated from God as he's taken pains to show us in the first three chapters of this letter. And now through Christ, you've been brought near. You've been grafted into, that's language from Romans 11, but you've been brought into the the family of God, the, the people of God. And so now you are to regard the Gentiles, that is 
the people among whom you once lived as unbelievers and don't live like them. Really, he's calling them to no longer live the way that they themselves used to live because they themselves were not believers in Jesus Christ and were enslaved to the very same kinds of, uh, of behaviors and ways of thinking. Don't live like unbelievers. And then he gives four descriptions of these unbelievers in the, in, in the remainder of verses 17 through 19. Four descriptions. Here's the first one. They are futile in their thinking. No longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Futility is, is meaninglessness. It, it, it's something that is futile is something that is disconnected from its purpose. So it cannot achieve what it was supposed to achieve. That makes it futile. And so in the case of unbelievers, people who have not repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, their minds, their thinking is futile. It means that their intellect and their capacity for reasoning that God gave them has been wasted on things that do not serve their intended purpose, namely, to know and love God. Remember Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And this sums up the law and the prophets. So it's not an accident that he includes the mind in the, the ways in which we are to love God. We are to love God with our mind. That is the ways that we think the patterns of thought and understanding that we have. And in the case of unbelievers, their thinking is disconnected from the purpose for which God intended it. Their thinking is futile. Don't live like unbelievers do because their thinking is futile. Number two, the second description he gives us is that they are darkened in their understanding. Connected, It's related to the futility of thinking. But it's because their minds, their intellects, their reasoning is disconnected from its purpose. Then, therefore, their understanding of the world and the way that things are and what's true and what's false and what's ultimate and what's temporal. Those things are wrong. Those things are misguided. They are darkened in their Understanding, And he, and he uh, attributes this at some level to an ignorance. You see there at the end of verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. And then just a few words later, he says, because of the ignorance that is in them. And I think the ignorance here is more than and worse than a simple don't know what you don't know kind of an ignorance. This is a willful, culpable ignorance on the part of. The unbelievers look in, uh, or I'll read to you Romans chapter one. Paul speaks to the same reality, and he's speaking again, not as those bad guys out there, but this was the situation all of us were in and are in, apart from the grace of God. He says in Romans chapter one, beginning of verse eighteen, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress. The truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. A lot of similarities between those verses, even in the language and the language that he uses here in Ephesians chapter 4. But this is an ignorance that comes from a person looking at the world around them and instead of seeing and accepting and submitting to the realities that the world gives us, that there is a God and that God is wise and powerful and divine. Instead of embracing and submitting to those realities, this person pushes them aside. This person dismisses, denies, rejects those realities and goes on living in his own way. Goes on thinking about the world, even interpreting life and philosophizing about the nature of reality apart from the knowledge of God. And there is no way that that will be a successful endeavor. They are darkened in their understanding. Now, be clear, this doesn't mean that they're stupid. This does not in any way mean that somebody who is an unbeliever is necessarily stupid. And in fact, many of them, many of those who speak in these ways and who look at the world around them and to speak into the sort of systems of life and, and philosophize about government and, the, and human nature and all these kinds of things are very educated, learned, distinguished, even eloquent. Their intelligence is not in question. Sometimes the most eloquent and impressive displays of mental acuity come from those who suppress God's truth and stubbornly refuse to give honor to him. As Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. If that is your starting place, God can't exist, so let me make sense of the world around me. Apart from that, apart from him, everything that comes after it is going to be foolishness, no matter how smart it sounds, no matter how educated a person is. They are darkened in their understanding. Third description he gives us of unbelievers here that he's urging us not to live like them is that they are alienated from the life of God. Right there in verse 18, They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Now recall the dreadful condition of one separated from God. He told us back at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience. Down in verse 5, he says it again, right? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive. And so the one separated from God is spiritually dead. Dead in trespasses and sins. Down in verse 12 of chapter 2, he said, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. With the result that what? You have no hope and are without God in the world. This was the condition of these Gentile believers before they trusted in Christ. Indeed, that's the condition of every human being before they trust in Christ. That was our condition. 
before Christ rescued us. When separated from God, even the most powerful intellect is darkness, ignorance, and ultimately deception. And so those, these unbelievers have cut themselves off, as it were, in their sin and in their suppression of the truth. They've cut themselves off from God and his life, the life that he comes to impart. They're alienated from the life of God. And then the, fi- the fourth and final description he gives of these unbelievers is that they are hard of heart. They are hard of heart. They have become callous. F.F. Bruce, the, uh, the great New Testament scholar, said uh, of this hardness of heart that it is the progressive inability of conscience to convict them of wrongdoing. To say that they have become hard of heart, that they have grown callous, is to say that their conscience is no longer able to convict them. It takes more and more from their conscience to even get their attention. They are progressively unable to respond to the prick of conscience. There's a warning, a stern warning for us in this. The more you violate your conscience, the less it will provoke you. The more you ignore its voice, the less clearly it will speak. God has given us conscience as a gift to guide us, to warn us. And the more we hear its voice and push it aside and proceed, the less our conscience will even attempt to get our attention. The more hardened we become to conscience. The, the Greek for uh, callous here, in, in one Greek lexicon, it's, it said that it means to have lost the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. To have lost the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. Perhaps you've been with somebody who sort of makes a fool of themselves in public and you say something like, have you no shame? Right? That, that's a silly example. That's a low, uh, a low stakes example. But the reality is that there are those. Those who are unbelievers, separated from, alienated from the life of God, darkened in their understanding, who because of their hardness of heart, have lost the ability to feel shame have lost the ability to be embarrassed about their behavior. Whatever I do, whatever I choose, however I behave, however I speak, no problem. And if you're offended, that's your deal. Nothing wrong with what I'm doing. They've lost the ability to feel shame or embarrassment. And the result of this lack of shame is that they have given themselves up to sensuality, And become greedy to practice every kind of impurity. The word sensuality there has the idea of being enslaved to our bodily desires. The senses. So to say that they've given themselves up to sensuality is to say whatever their body craves, they give it. Whatever fleshly or bodily urge or desire creeps up, they indulge it. That's what sensuality means. And because of this hardness of heart, this inability to feel shame or embarrassment, this, this inability to, to hear the prick of conscience, they just give themselves up to do whatever their body says. The one who is enslaved to his own desires is a slave indeed. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity, even the idea of like, give me all the impurity I can get, right? There's, there's this downward slope 
that sinners are on by nature. And apart from the interrupting, intervening grace of God to snatch a sinner from that slope, he is doomed to destruction. Let me just warn you here. If you find yourself on a pathway of increasing laxity, that is just looseness, where you feel less prick of conscience when you sin, more freedom to indulge personal lusts and desires, beware. You are in dangerous territory and heading towards spiritual ruin. That is the condition of these unbelievers. And there's danger even for believers, those who profess Christ, to fall into these same patterns. The doorway of feudal thinking. You can kind of see a progression here through these four things. The the doorway of futile thinking, that is thinking that is disconnected from its purpose and thus meaningless, the doorway of futile thinking leads down a steady path all the way to hardness of heart. If your resources of reasoning and intellect are disconnected from their purpose of knowing God, and you're ignorant, that is without knowledge of Him and His love, and you're therefore separated from Him, cut off from His life, then the end result of that trajectory is a hard heart that is immune to his warnings and the pleas of conscience and bent inward on personal gratification. That is the trajectory of the unbeliever. This could not be more simple, but perhaps because of its obviousness, it isn't stated frequently enough among Christians You are not free to live however you choose. Because we belong to Jesus Christ, we are not free to live however we please. I'm obviously not talking here about choices and circumstances and situations that aren't moral. They don't have moral implications. What job to take, what house to live in, what clothes to wear, what spouse to marry. Those sorts of things are not in the the realm uh, of, of morality here. But when it comes to the kinds of things we celebrate, the kinds of things we enjoy, the kinds of decisions we make, the kinds of words we speak, the kinds of relationships we cultivate, Christians are not free to live however they please. As followers of Jesus Christ, redeemed from your sin and given the Spirit of God to live within you, you have been called to abandon ungodly patterns, habits, mindsets, Choices, language, and behaviors. As Paul urged us early in this chapter, I urge you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. There's an article in our membership covenant that says this. We will seek to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. And remember that we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave. So there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. This is something that we covenant together to do and to to hold each other accountable to by the grace of God. May he grant us the power to live this out. Okay, so if we're not to live like this, How are we to live? Glad you asked. That's where Paul turns next. Don't live like unbelievers. Live according to the new man. 
Live according to the new man, verses 20 through 24. The word man there is the the Greek behind what the ESV translates as self. So it says put off the old self and put on the new self. And it's simply the Greek man, which is just a generic term for person. Nevertheless, I think that has a a, a good ring to it. And it's a more kind of traditional way in English that people have spoken about this for many years. So live according to the new man. He begins by reminding us of how we were taught. Remember what you were taught. Look at verse 20 and 21. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ contains power for a new way of life. He doesn't call us to something that he doesn't equip us to do. He doesn't say, go live like a new man. Go live with these new uh, desires and instincts and rules and commands, putting aside what's behind you, and good luck with that, because I'm not going to give you any resources for that. That's not what he's done. The gospel of Jesus Christ freed us from the penalty of sin when Christ was crucified in our place, and it frees us from the power of sin in our lives now, which is not to say that it's not still an ongoing struggle and a battle that we fight and will fight for the entirety of our lives on this earth. It certainly is. But he's equipped us with his spirit who is indwelling us, who has sealed us until the day of redemption to fight against sin and to live according to the new man. I'm reminded here, uh, I think it's important to remember here the sequence of grace before law that Paul himself has been careful to to maintain and express throughout even this letter. There There is not a command to go and live like a new person and then talk of Christ and the cross and what he accomplished. It's exactly the other way around. This is perhaps most poignantly expressed in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. If you were to glance back across the page there, it says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That is plain as day. Salvation is by grace. That is God's power to you through faith in Christ. That's it. Not a result of works. And then verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So yes, there's a new way of life. There's good works that He's prepared for us to walk in. But that comes only after we've been given the grace that saved us. We've been brought back to life by the power of Jesus Christ and His cross. And in that new life, we now are called to walk. Life according to the new man is not a moral self-improvement plan. It is a resurrection power at work within you plan. Overcoming sin and journeying toward Christ-likeness over time. And by the way, strap in for the long haul because it's not a short journey. There is no shortcut to holiness. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with each other. 
We're all journeying one day at a time, one foot in front of the other toward conformity to Jesus Christ. So how do we do this new man thing? He says, remember, this is how you were taught in Christ. You've been given the resources to do this through Christ's gospel. How do we do this new man thing? Three steps. Steps is too crude, probably, of a word, but there's three aspects here of the, the life according to the new man. Number one is putting off the old man. See that in verse 22. To put off your old self or your old man, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through its deceitful desires. This belongs to your former manner of life. In other words, he's speaking, again, remember, to Gentile Christians who have been converted out of this life of ungodliness, this life of wickedness and following the devil and the world and their own flesh. And so he says, this old man is the way that you used to be. It's the manner of life that you used to carry out before your conversion. Back at the beginning of chapter 2, he spoke about it at some length. You followed, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Um, you followed the course of this world, followed the prince of the power of the air, right? This was, we were children of wrath by nature, like the rest of mankind. This is the way that we used to live. This is the way that before Christ, sinners, unbelievers lived. And there's a putting off of all of that. He says of that old man that it's corrupt through its deceitful desires, deceitful desires it's interesting to think about that phrase our desires themselves deceive us our desires deceive us jeremiah 79 says that the human heart is is deceptively sick who can trust it so all of the sort of Disney princess kind of advice about following your heart is nonsense. If you follow your heart, it will lead you in all kinds of terrible directions and to terrible destinations. Our desires are deceitful. They deceive us. And the fact that this, this former way of life and this old man that we're to put off uh, begins with desires reminds us that sin starts in the heart. Sin is more than merely an outward act. Sin begins in minds and hearts as we allow our thoughts to to dwell and, and to hover around things that we know to be forbidden, things that we know God does not condone or bless. And as we allow those thoughts to become plans and intentions in our hearts, and we're making sort of allowances for ourselves, justifications, just this one time, won't hurt anybody, nobody has to know about it, I'll say I'm sorry right after it, I know God will forgive me, right? There's all kinds of ways that we justify ourselves in our sin. This is the way that sin and our deceitful desires lead us astray. And we're commanded here to actively put it off, to put off the old man, which means number one, you got to be aware of it. I got to know that the old man is there. And that those desires are creeping up. And then i got to take intentional actions to bat those things away. Right? I need to be fighting against sin. This takes decisive action, daily decisions to reject our deceitful desires. And as it were, starve the old man. I don't know how many sermons you've heard that encourage you to starve the old man. But um, 
There it is. Starve the old man that is within you and creeps up through these deceitful desires. The second aspect of this uh, new, this living according to the new man is, the, is to be renewed in your mind. The renewal of your mind. Look at verse 23. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds. I don't think he means Holy Spirit there. I think he means sort of like the attitude. To, to be renewed in the, the, the spirit of your mind. And I think you can see here a pretty strong uh, stark contrast between this renewal of mind and the darkened understanding and the futility of mind that he just spoke about in terms of unbelievers, right? Before you were in Christ, your understanding was darkened. Your minds were futile. Now that you're in Christ and you have this new man to cultivate and to live by, you're to cultivate that. You're to move in that direction. You're, you're to be renewed in your mind. I want you to notice that this is, uh, this is passive, While the put off the old self is an active verb, this renewal of the mind thing is a passive verb. In other words, he doesn't say renew your minds. He says be renewed in your mind, which means the agent that's acting upon our minds is outside of us. I wonder who that might be. Back to Romans one more time. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 tells us this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So it's that same idea of, of being transformed by God as He renews our minds. The renewal of our minds is something that God's Spirit accomplishes. Our part is simply to place ourselves in His pathway. It's to place ourselves in the way of His Word and His Gospel and His Church and to avail ourselves of the means of grace that God gives us that our minds might be transformed. The more we come to know the Word of God, the more we come to understand the mind of God, the more our minds will be shaped in the same ways. The more we'll be able to identify falsehood and counterfeit in light of what is true. So the, to be renewed in the, in the spirit of your minds is then to, to place yourself in the pathway of his word and of his spirit so that he might do the work over time of transforming and renewing our ways of thinking. And then the final action here, this third aspect of living according to the new man is simply the command, put on the new man. So he's told us in verse 22, put off your old self, your old man. Verse 23, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And verse 24, put on the new man, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. To put on the new man, just as the, the, the putting off of the old man requires an active choice, a, a sort of starving of those old desires and a, a, an arguing against our own minds and desires at times and fighting against our sins. So the putting on of the new man requires an active choice to feed those new ways of thinking and to feed those new desires and to, to lean into the ways of God. It's really uh, instructive and important, I think, that we see that this new man, 
that's the result of our new life in Christ, is a kind of restoration of the image of God in us. Do you see that? Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. It's a, it's, a, it's a restoring of the image of God in us that was dampened, that was muted by sin. We were, people still bear the image of God, even sinners who have not trusted Christ. Every human being bears the image of God, but it's, it's suppressed in a way. It's, it's covered over with layers of, of sin and, and unbelief and darkened understanding. But when we come to Christ, when Christ gives us new life, it's as though he sort of blows the dust off and, and, and uncovers it so that the image of God in us is, is seen more clearly and comes to be uh, more, uh, more poignant and obvious in our lives. Of course, Genesis 1.27 tells us that God created mankind in his image, in his likeness, to bear his image. Colossians 3 is a great parallel passage to this. Colossians 3 verses 9 and 10. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Exact same exhortation here. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Very same truth. Even some of the same language that Paul uses in Colossians 3 as he does in Ephesians 4. We're being renewed in knowledge after the image of our Creator. Paul said one more time in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that great passage where he's speaking of the coming resurrection of believers. We know we're confident about the resurrection of Christ, and therefore that means that we will one day be raised with him. So in speaking of that resurrection, he says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that is of Adam, so also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So the image of Christ, the image of God is being renewed and restored with the goal, with the final destination that when we are in his presence for all eternity, we reflect him. We have become in ways like him. He'll always be creator. We'll always be creature. He'll always be worthy of worship. We won't be. So I'm not saying we're like him in all respects, but we come to reflect him. We remember that that's what he's after in us, right? Is to conform us to the image of Christ. And in case you're wondering what this renewed image, this restored image of God looks like, he tells us, in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness and holiness. People who choose the right thing. People who are known for their integrity and their goodness. People who have about them the fruit of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These are the righteousness and holiness that that should characterize Christians as we grow toward the likeness of Christ. And again, it's just, it takes decisive action. Right? There's a starving, uh, starving the old man is only half the job. The other half of the job is cultivating the new man. Simply availing ourselves of the means of grace that he's given us in his word, in prayer, 
in relationships with other Christians, in the, in the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism when we're able to do that. Those are all ways that God has given to his church to build up this new man, to feed those new desires, and to build one another up. So a few thoughts in, in concluding here. I'll wrap this. If you've botched this all up, if you, have, uh, if you look at your own life, uh, whether it's a past season uh, or it's a current struggle, and you think, man, I have just messed this up. I have been living like the old man. I have really not cultivated this new man kind of life. If that's you, fall on the mercy of Jesus. Hebrews 4.16, which has become one of my very favorite verses, assures us that we can come to Christ for both grace to help in time of need and for mercy when we failed. He is there. He welcomes us in both situations. When we need him, when we need strength, when we need that measure of grace to overcome temptation, to fight against sin, to grow in godliness, we come to him, we find help. And when we fail... We come to him and we find mercy. We find a high priest who's not unsympathetic with our weaknesses. The one who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Trust his goodness. Rest in his grace. You're not forsaken. On this journey, be patient. Be patient with yourself. Be patient with each other. Give the Spirit of God time to uncover sin. To coax from us confession and repentance. To grant the courage to confront our own fallenness and to take next steps. It takes time. It's a supernatural work of God in the heart of a sinner. Give him time. And encourage each other. Be a resource to each other. New man living is a community project. It has to be. God always intended it to be such. Don't try to live the new man life on your own. Be connected to a community of faith in vital relationships where you can encourage and help each other. And finally, have real hope that you can change. The gospel is not empty words or vain promises. Right? Christ really defeated the grave. And that power is really at work within you. Dare to believe in the possibility of a better future where sin's grip is weaker and Christ is more precious. He can do that. He wants to do that. He will do that. Give him time and put yourself in his pathway. Give him opportunities to cultivate this new man in your life and in the life of your neighbor. I'm going to conclude with this uh, quote from a, a book by David Powlison. Uh, who died just a couple of years ago, and this was one of the final books that he published called Making All Things New. He gives this encouragement. Recognize that sin won't be cleansed from your life at conversion and wiped away at the snap of a finger. Sin will slowly die throughout our journey of sanctification as we walk in the direction of Christ and repeatedly come to him in repentance and trust. The quantity of our sanctification isn't important. We're simply called to walk in the direction of Jesus. Friends, let's be those who commit to walk in the direction of Jesus and to encourage each other in that same pursuit. Let's pray.